This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet, pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. I'm Kat Armstrong, and you're listening to Holy Curiosity, a podcast highlighting the genius storytelling of God from the Old Testament to the New. Each week, we'll explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture. My hope is that these stories will spark a holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Tim Mackey, one of the creators of The Bible Project. Tim's podcast with John Collins is my favorite podcast out there. Sorry, Dr. Moore, you are a real close second. Tim has a master's from Western Seminary and a PhD in Hebrew Bible and Jewish Studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He also happens to be the best biblical theology nerd out there. Tim and I are going to trace Shechem through the Old Testament by quickly visiting each mention of it from Genesis to John. And here's what we're going to find. Places in the Bible don't just matter. They have meaning. God is a storytelling genius, and He repurposes Shechem as a location for some really troubling stories in the scriptures. And I think Shechem is like a literary pile-on. It's a really bad place and it needs redemption. Tim, welcome to Holy Curiosity. I'm so glad you're on the show today. This is like a dream come true. And I think my mom's like listening at the door, wondering <laughs> if she can get like an autograph. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I wish that I could reach through our screens, but uh, it's great to be here, Kat. Really happy to contribute to this important series of conversations. So fun story, my son Caleb is 10, and this summer we started reading the New Testament together, so mm -hmm. we gave him a big incentive. And before we started each book, we would watch the Bible Project video. Oh, wow. Okay, to, great. Yeah, to oh. introduce him to every book. Awesome. And so he's fallen in love uh, with Bible Project, and by the time we got to Revelation, Tim, he was like, he finished the video and he goes, Dragons and bloody battles. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he said. Yeah. Wow. That sounds like my 10-year-old. Uh, yeah. yeah, but that's good. That's good. I haven't shown him the, the Revelation videos yet. You're braver than I am. <laughs> I it opened a whole can of worms, multiple. Yeah. Uh, wow. But it was, it's so neat to see through a child's <laughs> eyes, you know, yeah. how they take in these stories. Yes. And I joke often that my son is the one who's envisioned so much of my ministry for me because mm. he comes to me with brilliant questions that I've never thought of, mm -hmm. or he connects images, people, places, and things in scripture that 
I didn't pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And he's so close to stories that he sees these storied elements that mm. otherwise I would miss. But we really appreciate the work of Bible Project. So glad you're on the show. And the reason I wanted you on, Tim, is I wanted you to help us trace Shechem, a place in the Bible, mentioned in the Bible several mm-hmm. times, from the Old Testament to the New. And so I'd love for you to talk about why tracing a Bible location is mm. important for our Bible study. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent question. And just good instinct to assume that there is some benefit, but what is it? But the instinct is, is right. The Bible it originated as a collection of texts from an actual set of places and times in ancient Israel's history. And so there's a lot that, you know, the biblical authors could take for granted about just assumed knowledge on the part of the readers. And so a lot of biblical geography certainly began life with just because these are the places where the things happened. But as the years went on and the biblical collection developed, and as the biblical authors over generations began to shape the collection, one thing they did was shape especially the narrative books that span from Genesis through Second Kings, really as a unified whole, and shaped the stories so that there's a linkage of repeated words and themes that go from right from the seven-day creation narrative at the beginning mm-hmm. all, all the way through to the exile in Babylon at the end of Second Kings. And one of the ways that they develop repeated themes throughout that collection is by highlighting where events took place. They don't always have to tell us where something took place, and they often don't. <laughs> so whenever they do, it's usually significant. And she can't, oh, okay, so let's get a little Hebrew lesson. In Hebrew, or classic Hebrew, the, the place name is called Shechem. There's actually no Shechem. vowel between the S-H and the, the Yeah, in the Texas, H. we say Shechem. Yes, I, totally. <laughs> That's right. So, and you roll with that, Kev. So I'll, <laughs> I'll probably say, I might go back and forth, but I'll probably say Shechem. It's the Hebrew word for shoulder or back. And some people have wondered if the fact that the town was located in that valley between mm-hmm. the two, that it, if it means something like back, like between your two shoulder blades... If you kind huh. of put your shoulder blades back, it yeah, comes kind of like valley. the town in the middle. So when the biblical authors, I think, surveyed their history and they saw patterns of the similar types of things tend to happen at the same places over the course of their history, the biblical authors highlighted that and often then would shape and tell stories in a certain way to evoke all the memories that have taken place previously at that location. And so really places become amazing symbols full of the significance that every event kind of loads it. And you're kind of assumed to know that. So famous ones, of course, are like Jerusalem or Mount Sinai. But uh, actually Shechem is one of them. It's sort of like the sleeper in the group. You know, you don't know (laughs) that it's actually really important and there's an important thread of key events that happened at Shechem that give it a particular feel. Maybe it might be the vibe like in, if you put yourself in the mind of a movie director and every time there's a key location, you maybe have a certain lighting or the musical score has a certain melody or notes and you get the feeling of that place. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to how uh, Shechem, Shechem works. It almost feels as though these geographical locations in the text become characters themselves or function like characters because they get developed over time. When they appear, it's 
you keep saying highlighting. For me, it's like they're zooming in and zooming yeah. out and zooming in. It's good. And it's just as if I were to visit Nashville for the first time mm. and say, you know, what else has happened here in Nashville? Mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. What's happening now, but also what has happened here before and learning the history of this place. Yeah. And until I took a trip to the Holy Land, Hmm. and stood in modern-day Samaria, mm-hmm. I didn't put any of these things together. I sure. think I had to be in a physical location and ask myself, yeah. what else has happened here? Yeah. And that's why I put these two women together, Dinah and the woman yeah. at the well. Yes, excellent. Otherwise, I never would have connected their stories. Yeah, Isn't that interesting? So you could have before ever having visited there, just because they're both in the same collection. I mean, there were centuries of history and events that took place there, and just a handful right, are included about a dozen or so in the biblical story. So even that tells us there is a a reason why these are the stories that have been brought up and why they're all linked together. But they're linked together in what might seem to us like strange ways where we're like, what? What does that have to do with that? But it's all linked together in a a significant way. Well, let's link them up. Let's talk about the first mention. I don't know that we have time for all of them, but let's definitely talk about Genesis 12. Abram builds an altar to God there. So give us some context for this. What's happening? Uh, I'm really curious. Yes. So one thing that I think the biblical authors took for granted, maybe in their original setting, is about the topography of Shechem and where it's located, because it's a town located in a valley in between two really tall hills, almost almost, or just a little above 3,000 feet, or like eight and 900 meters above the town. It has a really striking topography when you're there. And so those two mountains play a key role in the symbolism of it, because mountains and valleys are, themselves are like types of characters and places in the story of the Bible. And it doesn't mean that they're just making it all up, because oftentimes they just don't describe where things happen. But mm-hmm. when they do, it's because they see a connection, the biblical authors, mm-hmm. I mean, and they want us to see something there too. So where we're at in Genesis 12 is that after the scattering of the people that the Tower of Babel, the people are scattered, and then the author follows one family and genealogy from that scattered family over in the east, Mesopotamia, in modern day, like Iraq. And that family migrates to the west And then from that family, God calls one of the sons and his wife, Abram and Sarah. And these are the famous lines, I'm going to bless those who bless you, those who treat you Mm -hmm. as cursed, I will curse, and in you all the nations of the land will be blessed. So God wants to restore the Eden blessing through this couple by them becoming a great family. And he then says, go to a land that I'm going to show you. So Abram and Sarah just wander to the west And the first place that they arrive, right after God makes that promise, is in Genesis 12, verse 6. He passed through the land to the place of Shechem. And then you're given one more detail about Shechem, that he lands at this tree called the Oak of Moreh. Mm -hmm. And the word Moreh means sight or seeing. It also is spelled with the exact same letters as the Hebrew word for instruction, from which we get the word Torah. God's instruction. So it's interesting. And then there at that tree by Shechem, God appears to him. And this is the first time we're told about like any kind of apocalypse or revelation of God's presence. And there God makes the promise that to that big family that I just promised you about, I'm going to give this land. And so 
Abram immediately performs an act of surrender. He builds an altar to Yahweh who became seen to him. So the first thing that happens in Shechem is a promise of, of blessing and of Eden mm -hmm. abundance. God makes himself visible to Abraham, which is astounding and it's not filled in. Huge. But after the Garden of Eden, the exile of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, where you know that God came in some physical manifestation to walk with his covenant partners in the wind of the day or the cool of the day, you had one little line of Enoch walked with God, mm -hmm. and then he was not. Noah walked with God. And now here's God becoming visible. So this is a very rare personal, intimate manifestation of God's presence, a promise of Eden blessing. And Abram not only responds positively to God's call, which to just like go somewhere that you don't know, uh, but then he performs this act of worship and surrender. So it's a, just a few little lines, but they're really, really important <laughs> after the story you've read over the last 12 pages. And you're like, I, apparently the hope for the human family now lies with this couple and the key revelation of God to this couple in the land. The first place was Shechem. So it's full of promise, full of hope and full of blessing. Hooray. Yeah. I mean, it seems <laughs> to me our first introduction to this place is that it's safe and it's a place where you worship God. It's mm -hmm. where you commune, connect with God. Yeah. And so I feel like that's why Genesis 34, which comes next, feels so yeah. jarring. Yeah, because it's right. supposed to be a safe place where you commune with God. That's what happened last. Mm -hmm. And now we have what seems to me a crime scene. Yeah. And so the important set of dots kind of between the two stories is uh, it wasn't all like roses and obedience for Abraham and Sarah. They actually immediately distrust that promise that God made them. And they come up with a plan to create that big family through their own wisdom and plan, which is to, for Abraham to have sex with an Egyptian slave that they acquired when he was lying through his teeth to the king of Egypt right. at, the, at chapter 12. So they get this Egyptian slave, and then he has sex with her, and then we're told that that slave became dishonored in the family, and Sarah, Abram's wife, oppresses her, and mm -hmm. she wants to run away. And God's response to that is both to bring a sign of judgment and hope on Abraham's body. And this is relevant for Genesis 34. Yep. So, and that sign is circumcision. Mm -hmm. So it's a cutting away of all this flesh from the part of the body that Abraham just used to abuse their Egyptian slave. But then also it's a sign of hope because it's from that part of the body that Abraham will make his contribution to Sarah's womb and to the future of their family that God's going to bless the nations through. And then the first person, the first male to receive circumcision is Abraham's firstborn son, Ishmael, who's incidentally not of the line of the covenant promise. It goes to the secondborn, um, his son, Isaac. And so circumcision is about the inclusion of the outsider into the covenant promise. And that's a, this is a part of what makes what happens in Genesis 34 even more tragic not just that the place where God first revealed himself becomes a place of tragedy and murder and abuse, but also the thing, the practice that God instituted for the inclusion of the outsider becomes a weapon for murder. So Genesis 34 is one of those stories in the Bible that's like, pick your movie, right? Or TV series. <laughs> it's a tragedy. 
-hmm. It's shocking. It's gross. It's meant to horrify you. The fact that the story is in the Bible doesn't mean that anything that happens in the story is okay. And it's actually trying to expose some of the darkest, most horrific expressions of human, human nature. So now Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and he has a, a big family. And we're only told about one daughter born to him, Dinah. That's how you say her name in Hebrew or Dinah. And so he buys a plot of land from the leader of the town. And then, and actually, you've already done a whole episode to talk about this story. We have. I mean, we've talked about the power differentials. We've <laughs> talked about the importance of property ownership. But I am curious, Tim, just you've probably visited this chapter many times. Mm -hmm. I know I have. Mm -hmm. And what your reflections were on this reading, preparing for this show, or some mm -hmm. things that stood out to you that are newer and that are about the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one has less to do with the place and it has to do with this pattern that the Genesis narrator is really interested in is showing how children, and it goes every generation, you watch the, these stories about kids replaying and intensifying the failures of their parents. Yep. Never identically, never the same, right. but almost always replaying in some way, but in even worse, more tragic fashion. And it all escalates up to uh, this story. And then a few chapters later, where Jacob's 12 sons, his 11, you know, a bunch, 10 of his sons betray and sell their brother yeah. into slavery, also connected to Shechem. So yes. Two of the most tragic moments of betrayal, near murder, just cold, heartless treatment of other humans, both happen at, uh, in connection with Shechem. And, and this is the first one. What's always stood out to me is just that double emphasis that she was attacked by a man Name Shechem in a place called Shechem. Mm -hmm. it, doesn't it feel as though you cannot escape this yeah. name yeah, and this place? Right. And it feels like a double emphasis that by the time you get there, if you've missed it up mm -hmm. until this point in the in the biblical narrative, you're not going to miss it this time. That's right. You mentioned Jacob, yeah, and he's a very layered character in the mm -hmm. scriptures. He, mm. I'm not here for a lot of the things that he did. And I also see some redemptive movements in his life that mm -hmm. I celebrate. But when mm -hmm. we get to Genesis 37 mm -hmm. and he thinks that Joseph is dead, his reaction mm. to Joseph's death compared mm -hmm. to what appears to be silence Mm -hmm. of Dinah's rape in mm -hmm. Genesis 34 really bothers me. We have a couple of other shows in the series talking even specifically about that with Dr. Diane Landberg and some other folks, but I, I really want to get your take on some mm -hmm. of this. Yeah, it is important that where Jacob last sends his son Joseph off to go visit his brothers where everything goes wrong, he sends him to Shechem. And his brothers actually are not at Shechem. He meets some guy there who says, oh, your brothers are in this place, Dotan, and then he goes there. But in Jacob's mind, where he last sent him and where he last knows where he was is at Shechem, which is crucially important, I think. Also, which tells you that Jacob, in relation to Shechem, had a daughter where something horrible happened to his daughter, and what you get hear from him is silence. Mm -hmm. Whereas his sons get angry, and they act with betrayal, and murder a whole bunch of innocent people out of their anger. And now here he is sending his second youngest son now to Shechem. And that sets up a whole sequence of events where those same sons act with murderous treachery, not towards outsiders, though, but to their own brother. 
And when he hears of it, he is not silent. He refuses to be comforted. He grieves for many days. He's broke. His children try to comfort him. Even the treacherous brothers try to comfort him, and he makes a big public show out of it, which doesn't mean it's not genuine, but it does. So the story really wants to contrast explicitly his reaction. So you already observed it, and I'm just adding more fuel to it to say I think the narrator wants us to compare and contrast the two reactions. And in my mind, it's self-evident. The narrator wants us to see the disparity between the two as a realistic reflection of the patriarchal cultural scenario where daughters, especially young unmarried daughters, their only value mm -hmm. in terms of cultural capital was to be married off to other men for the exchange for the bride price, economic and social value, functional. And so once Dinah is, as it were, made unvaluable by being mm -hmm. raped, she's not of value to him. That's how it works in these cultures. And I, it seems to me the narrator is highlighting that horrific aspect and outcome of that cultural scenario. And, and it's, I think it's important to us, it's important for me, I'll, I'll forget about us, important for me to recognize when the biblical authors are showing us, exposing severely broken, distorted parts of human nature individually, and then also culturally, like in that a cultural practice, it doesn't mean they're endorsing it right. by the fact that they're narrating it. You know, when you talk about how it bothers you, I think that is right. Like that's something right. we're being led to because this is so not the Garden of Eden ideal. Like we are so far from that. And for a long time, I wondered like, is that just me? And the biblical authors don't think about that. But I am convinced that the biblical authors are, are trying to bother us because it bothers, bothers them too. That, that's where I'm at currently. A hundred percent. So we've gone, I think we've covered most, if not all, in Genesis, the mentions of this place. And it's gone from a place where you meet safely with God to a crime scene, to a really worse crime scene, mm -hmm. to a place you definitely don't want your son to be abandoned to. Yeah, that's right. There, there are a couple others. It's not mentioned by name, but it is hinted at um, in Deuteronomy and Joshua. Shechem is, because okay. when Israel's supposed to go into the land after their journey up out of Egypt and through the wilderness... Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 11 and again in 27, go to this place, go to this valley where there's this tree called the Oak of Moreh between two mountains. And there, mm -hmm. read all the words of this covenant partnership that I've given to you and dedicate yourself to God. And then actually have a group of Israelites go up on one mountain, Ebal, and read aloud the disaster and the curses of the covenant, have a bunch of people go up Mount Gerizim. So... Moses says, go do this ritual when you get into the land, but never calls it Shechem. It just calls it by everything that you're supposed to know at Shechem. And then when you get to Joshua, Joshua does that. We're told that that's what he does in chapter 8. And then in chapter 24, he goes, yeah. they go, they build an altar, they dedicate themselves to God. And you're like, this is great. Like, what could go wrong? <laughs> a lot could go wrong, yeah, Tim. It's like, but it's a wonderful way that the narrator sets you up and mm -hmm. then you're like, well, I know what happened when after Abraham like dedicated himself to God, it went mm -hmm. terrible. We feel some possibility. Yeah, that's right. In Deuteronomy and Joshua. And then yeah. I also think I know we, we're not there yet, but by the time we get to John chapter four, hmm. 
don't you imagine that this is exactly what they would have in the back of their brains? Mm-hmm. That these mm-hmm. these moments of going to that valley with those two mountains and then her conversation about yes. the two mountains and where the temple's supposed to be yeah. and this moment where she declares her faith, right? So yeah, exactly uh, I just right. think she's, she's repeating this uh, storyline. Yeah. And if we're not following this place, we wouldn't know that. Yeah, that's right. So it's a wonderful example of you can read a story about Jesus and a woman up near a well at this place and not know anything and just read the words for the first time. And it's a beautiful, compelling, amazing story. But John has loaded that story with all kinds of little nuances and details for further layers of meaning to discover over time. And that's definitely right. The fact that Shechem was where the inclusion of the outsider mm-hmm. was twisted and perverted into this weapon of murder... Right where Dina was raped, abused, and even abandoned by her own dad in terms Mm -hmm. of not defending her. And then the contrast of how Jesus both includes and then deals so empathetically and tenderly with this woman who has been made an outsider by others. It's deeply, deeply powerful. But we have a chance. You know, Mm -hmm. with Joshua, we have this hope of maybe, maybe it's going to be like Genesis 12 all over again, maybe. Mm -hmm. And then we get to Judges and it's a dumpster fire. It's a dumpster (laughs) fire of leadership, fires all over the book. You know, it's a dumpster fire of violence. We have like a brief glimmer of hope in Deborah. And, but Judges 9, I mean, I get yeah. nervous. This is silly, but I get nervous even reading about this king. Yeah. Um, but this king, he's connected yeah. to Shechem. Yeah. He murders 70 of his brothers on the same stone, which yeah. to me sounds very bloody. That's yep. This is not my scene. It's okay to be bothered by the Bible. It, it actually seems, but in these certain stories, that's the point is to make us uncomfortable, which by definition means we won't want to move towards it very often. But sometimes there can be value in even inching what is for me, whatever the next step forward, to remind myself of what's also true and real, even if I want to avoid thinking about it. That's a part of the balance, I guess, of what the Bible's trying to offer Mm -hmm. us. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, 
a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I'm feeling Shechem is a place I never want to go. Yeah. This is no. like, get me out of here. Totally Don't right. go there. Don't send anybody there. Hope you're not from there. It seems even if you're from there, it follows you. Yeah. So this is the bad place. Though the Abraham and the Joshua moments remind us that those places are not, it's not like they're destined to be that. They mm. become that because of the slow repetition mm. of choices over the course of generations and that's also part of the wisdom, I think, of the biblical story is that we inevitably replay the actions of our parents, whether we want to or not. But it is also our choice and it doesn't have to end in Shechem. Like it can yeah. end differently. It can yeah. and it often does. But it, it always is the result of a choice. It's not like we're fated to be that. And that's the paradox of Shechem. It's so rich. I mean, what a profound conversation we're having just by tracing, you know, this this place through the Bible. It does feel faded to me at this mm. point in the story. Mm. It wasn't until I got to John that I felt like oh, I can finally, finally take a breath. Yes. I can finally release this tension that I have felt yeah. for so long thinking, get me out of this place. Why would he ever go to this place? What was he doing here? Yeah. And I do feel like it disrupts this long narrative that's been building. Hmm. Don't go there. Don't be there. Don't be from there. These are all the bad things that can happen. Even these little high points we've had. Guess what? We've had huge disappointments mm -hmm. right after. Don't get your hopes up here. Things are not going to change here. And hmm. then Jesus steps into Sikar, which, you know, that for me, Tim, opened up a whole new world hmm. of God can come in to really dark places in our own lives mm -hmm. and redeem places we don't want to be, that we do feel are fated. Mm -hmm. And I think anyone who has the kind of background I do, where you mm -hmm. feel like things just chase you or mm -hmm. chase your family members, or mm -hmm. this is it's like, you're going to end up being a statistic. Mm -hmm. Jesus showing up in these places, mm -hmm. manifesting himself in a special way um, is so meaningful mm -hmm. because of all the other things that have happened in this place in mm -hmm. the Bible story. But I'd love to get to mm -hmm. 1 Kings 12. Yeah, so 1 Kings 12 is about the son of the famous King Solomon. You know, Solomon had a high point. Instantly, God appeared to him in a vision at a tree, and he built mm -hmm. an altar too and made sacrifices like Abraham and asked God for wisdom to be a wise king. And he kind of did until he didn't. Yeah. And then uh, he went the same road as Gideon and accumulated lots of wives and uh, the birth of his son. And his son is crowned king at Shechem. So 
The important background detail is that the tribes of the 12 sons of Jacob, like all that stuff that happened, like they became the 12 tribes. And there was always a very loose cohesion to the tribes. And Solomon's dad, David, brought the tribes together in the United Kingdom. But you always got the sense that it was a very tenuous unity. And Solomon raised taxes and reorganized the tax districts um, and just bulldozed over the lines of the tribal families. It's like he's trying to just remake Israel into a new type of thing. Mm -hmm. And so the moment that Solomon dies, the fractures are all right there. And so Rehoboam makes a wise move. He goes up into the heart of his neighboring northern tribes, brothers' tribes, and he has crowned king right there in the middle of them. And you could say that's potentially a savvy move. It's sort of like not being, not having your inauguration as president in in this Washington, D.C. It's like going it to all the like states. It seems like a good political move to yeah. me. It's like go it to the states that didn't vote before you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then go like have your inauguration there and make real efforts, you know. But mm -hmm. the first thing is that all these other leaders from the other tribes come from him uh, and say, listen, your dad had raised taxes a lot. Could we chill out on that? Like, could we dial it back? And he doesn't listen to the wisdom of his elders. He listens to the wisdom of his idiot, like college buddies. But essentially what he boasts is he's like, you saw my dad was like a big deal. I'm an even bigger deal. Right. And so there it is. That's Shkem, the brother's Great leadership. Brothers so expectant about this leader. Lucky us. Yeah, totally. Lucky yay. Yeah. I read the story and I'm like, great. Who's this guy and what mayhem is he going to create? And he doesn't yeah. disappoint. Yeah. And I noticed for the first time yesterday in my rereading was that he says he's going to add to their yoke. Yes. So Solomon had burdened them and taxed them seemingly to death. And instead of giving them mercy, which they ask for, mm -hmm. what he gives in return is not mercy, yep. but an added yoke, a burden. Yep. Yeah. And That's again, exactly I right. keep, I know I'm, I shouldn't fast forward too soon, but mm. I'm thinking of John. I, I'm thinking of Jesus. I'm thinking of his conversation. I'm thinking of how to really worship God. I'm thinking of what he tells her. But these burdens increase. It's another father-son multi-generational moment where um, you're watching the son replay and intensify the, the sins of, his, of the father. To me, that's the, the, one of the most prominent themes connected to Shechem is the way that parent-children hmm. dynamics are being emphasized hmm. there. It's, it's as if the story of the Hebrew Bible is trying to tell us that we are apart from God, intervening in some really, really intense way, we're done for. And Shechem is one of the main ways that that gets communicated. Yeah. I mean, by the time we get to Jeremiah 41, it's just yeah. hard for me to keep the details straight. Yes, but what I, what I think I understood is that a group of men from Shechem come to a place where their leader has been murdered. They don't know it yet. They hmm. get attacked they're killed, and then they're thrown in a cistern, mm -hmm. which becomes like a mass grave. Yes, yeah. And that summary right there is putting it lightly in terms of the elements of betrayal and deceit at work. So this is, after, this is in Jerusalem after Babylon has already conquered the city. They've already taken a whole bunch of Israelite leaders in exile to Babylon. Then they've set up a puppet king, a guy named uh, Gedaliah, which means... Uh, Yahweh is great. And the Babylonians put this guy, Gedaliah, in power. 
And all these people are trying to tell him, you're not a popular guy. Like, there's a lot of people who don't like you that think, because you work for the Babylonians. And so... Yeah, it's not going to happen. I'm so sorry. Like, stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not happening. Yeah, it's totally right. And um, he, we're told he won't listen to them. And so this guy named Ishmael, and we're told that he's from the royal seed. So the kingship that just got dismantled by Babylon and all the... Uh, Jehoiakim is the king's name, got hauled off. And so, uh, but there's a loyalist to the line of David still in town. It's this guy named Ishmael. And Ishmael looks at that puppet king working for Babylon. And you can, you can just start to see how this is. It's a political assassination. And so, but here's the thing is he doesn't he just assassinate the puppet king. He assassinates everybody in the whole court that day, in the royal court. Mm -hmm. So tons of people. And then there's what we're told is 80 men came from Shechem. And mm -hmm. what that means is they're not Jerusalemites. They're actually mm -hmm. from those neighboring tribes up to the north. They're like their brothers. And they don't even come down to cause problems. They come down in a state of ritual mourning to just grieve that Yahweh's house has been destroyed and that they can't offer right sacrifices there anymore. They come to worship like Abraham did. And uh, this guy Ishmael is so uh, paranoid that they just arrived into town, uh, he just slaughters them all. But there's 10 who say, uh, we have some stuff buried in a field, like a bunch of silver and gold. They basically buy their lives for, uh, for silver and gold. And then we're told that Ishmael throws the bodies into a pit. Now there's a whole bunch of, we don't have time, but there's all these echoes throughout the story here showing how this is another many generations later replay of what Joseph's brothers did to him. That's right. Because they're both are throwing him in a pit, trading life for silver and gold. And also, the people that Joseph's brother sold him to are Ishmaelites. And right. now here's Ishmael. And it's all these creative inversions. But also, doesn't it feel like, oh, wait, this is also like King Abimelech. Mm -hmm. we've, we've got a, a yes, similar of the amount of, yes. of people dying. Absolutely. You know, and then the Ishmaelites, and that's connected to Genesis 37 and, yes. and Joseph and the slave trade and, and all of this. And the, I just started seeing, wait a minute, that so we end the Old Testament. Shechem mm -hmm. has gone through some ups and downs. And it ends with not even the people who are trying to be loyal, mm -hmm. who leave it to come, they get killed. So mm -hmm. not only do you not want to go there, you don't even want to be, be from there. from there. That's exactly That's right. what it feels like to me. Yeah. Yeah. And it also feels like whatever hope we had of Genesis 12, by the time you get to Jeremiah 41, mm -hmm. forget about it. Yeah. The best you're going to get is a cistern. It's a grave. And then I feel like the very next thing we get mm. is a story about another cistern or a well. Mm -hmm. So are the words, I know we're jumping from Old Testament to new, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but good. I just couldn't. It was like yeah. cistern just kept rising out of Jeremiah 41 before I went to John chapter four. Yeah, that's great. So the difference between a cistern is just it's a big hole in the ground for collecting water, which is why it's just the Hebrew word bor, which means pit. However, a well, usually is there some fresh water source, you know, deep down underneath there. But the Hebrew word for well with a fresh water source is be'er. So it's spelled with two of the same letters. Bor is pit or cistern. Be'er uh, is well. And I'm actually just looking here, reminding myself of the word that John uses. He uses a Greek word pege, 
which is going to be like spring or, or well. But, but again, biblical authors often link stories together through word plays or puns way more often than our English translations can show us because it's in a different language. So we have the pit or cistern that Joseph mm-hmm. was thrown into on his mission to meet his brothers when he was betrayed by his brothers who replayed the sins of their father. <laughs> like that was all in connection with Shechem. Now here we have these brothers coming from the north who are betrayed and murdered by a guy named Ishmael, who's of mm-hmm. the line of David, who was the dad of Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And all of a sudden, all of them connect together. Yeah. Um, and then the 70 men who were murdered connect to the 70 men that my dad is king, Abimelech, murdered. So somebody really wants us to actually thread together all these stories within the Hebrew Bible. And of course, Jesus almost certainly actually met this woman at a well. But the fact, we didn't have to be told that information. The water (laughs) is the main point of the conversation. But as we know, the biblical authors could have left out that part and just started with his knowledge about her previous marriages. Like it could have started there. So the fact that they would, John would take time, paint the location, where, paint the well, the conversation about the well, uh, it's all, and that it's about a southerner, Jerusalem, right, of, of right. Jesus, and then a northerner or a Samaritan yep. woman. This is all activating all the main themes, isn't it, mm-hmm. that we've come across. Now, let's ponder the multi-generational piece here. Tell me how that strikes you in this moment. Well, you know, by the time I get to John 4, and he says Jesus had to go there, and we mm. know that Jesus doesn't have to do anything. <laughs> it makes me well up with tears even now. Mm. And I've written about this. I've preached about this a million times. Mm. But that Jesus chooses in a very short amount of time that he has to do ministry on earth mm. to make a point to go to this place that would have had all of this history, all these hard things happen and redeem the place Mm -hmm. into a place where you again can meet God and it's safe Mm -hmm. and the outsiders are welcome and you don't get stuck in the cistern. You don't even need to pull water from it. The water comes from you now through the Mm -hmm. spirit, you know, just there's so much there, but the first line in John four of Jesus having to go there And knowing what purpose, what intention he had to get to her to have this conversation. And as a woman, Tim, you know, I see lots of layers of the way women have been treated in this place. Women talk. We know how women are treated in certain places, institutions, in certain churches. And you you have to imagine that someone like the woman at the well, if she knew this hot topic of the day, And she could recognize that he might be the Messiah. And she had all these really theologically astute questions for him. She, of course, knew the history of this place and how women were treated. And I know I'm making some huge jumps and I know there's a lot of time, but I feel like there's so much power in Jesus showing up to Shechem, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Shechem, (laughs) this horrible place, Mm -hmm. the bad place. And now he's here. And I think that he's doing a lot of things in that conversation with her. But I also think he's he's showing that that location, that geographical location, that he can even redeem the stories of the past through his presence. Mm-hmm. And it's culminating towards some sort of hope mm-hmm. and redemption. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. Who knows what this woman had in her mind? 
except that this was just a life-changing encounter. Like, that's clear. That was for sure on her mind. But the question is for John. Why does John tell us the story, and what significance does he want us to see? And we know that he really cares about the meaning of places, because every other place, the wedding feast, the <laughs> seashore, Jerusalem, the temple courts, like these are loaded with meaning, and that we should just assume that there's going to be layers of meaning connected to this place that maybe the Samaritan woman didn't have in her mind, but that he wants us to see. And the other thing to really just bolster what you're saying, the fact that she appeals to the history of worship and what our ancestors did here, you know, That's your right. ancestors worshiped down yep. there, mm -hmm. our ancestors, she's appealing to the ancestral practice, which surely is meant to echo like there's a whole lot of other things our ancestors did here. They're inversions. And this is really an important tool that biblical authors have. They really count on readers bringing the whole history of memory into a particular stories. And part of their meaning is knowing how to connect them and, and in this case, invert. I mean, Jesus is just inverting almost every single expectation you have, which is, of course, why he's so beautiful. He is. There was no reason for Jesus to have been in Shechem, except for his divine determination to speak with a woman at the well and his intention to address generations of sin and trauma in this place. His entrance into the town would have caused first century readers to remember its biblical history in the Old Testament. I don't have to tell you this because you already know it, but let me point out the obvious. We need our terrorizing places to be redeemed. We need Jesus to show up in our do not enter zones. We need our generational struggles to be redeemed. And I think that's exactly why Jesus showed up in Sikar in John chapter 4. If you've got a Shechem, if you've got a Sikar, you are not alone. I do too, but Jesus is with us there. Here's what we're going to do in the next episode. We're going to experience some relief this has been heavy so far, but trust me, things are about to unlock in the scriptures and they're going to unlock some things in your soul too. We're going to look into the Samaritan woman's story in John chapter four, and we're going to have some scholarly help to do so. Doctors Lynn Kohick and Jackie Reese are going to join me in the next episode. Lynn's chapter in the book, Vindicating the Vixens, changed my life. And I know what she has to say is going to change yours too. Jackie was featured in the first episode of the series, and her work inspired my own. That's all for me today. Until next time, stay curious, y'all. Holy Curiosity is a production of Christianity Today. The executive producers are Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. Leslie Thompson is our producer. Our associate producer is Mackenzie Hill. Audio editing is done by Kevin Morris. Go deeper with me on Instagram at catarmstrong1 or on my website, catarmstrong.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? 
Bao's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bao's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.